morning. Some of you may not know who I am. If you're a newcomer, I'm Bill Bider. I'm one of the five elders here. And about three or four times a year, I have the opportunity to teach. And so I welcome that opportunity today. Um, I'm going to blame the holiday on the attendance and not the fact that <laughs> word may have gotten out that I was teaching. So um, I can at least comfort myself with that. I would like to add a, just one thing to what Mike said, or a little bit to what Mike said about Memorial Day weekend being upon us. It really is a time for us to be grateful for those who have really sacrificed their lives, the ultimate sacrifice, as Mike said, in service to our country and, and even to overcome evil around the world. Some of you may not know this, but uh, Memorial Day used to be called Decoration Day. And the purpose of that, and when it began, was in 1868, following the Civil War. And its purpose was to decorate the graves of the 620,000 people who died in the Civil War. Since then, almost an identical number of people have died in wars. But the Civil War is equal to all the other wars combined. So in total, we have about 1.2, 1.3 million who have died, and they are the ones that we are honoring and being grateful to their sacrifice. You may also know or not know, most of you probably think Memorial Day has, um, the term has existed forever, your whole life. But it really didn't start getting used, that term, until after World War II and then it was not even an official holiday until 1971. So a lot of people may not realize, they, they think it goes all the way back to the beginning, but it was Decoration Day until officially in 1971. So as I said, I'm pleased to be able to share with you this morning. And what I'm gonna be sharing about is a topic that I have been studying for months. And the reason I began this personal study and then decided to teach on it <clears throat> is because I had this feeling that the modern church maybe hadn't forgotten the holiness of God, but we seem to have not given it enough emphasis. And there is an impact associated with us downplaying or de-emphasizing the holiness of God. There's a man named A.W. Tozier who noticed this about 70 years ago. He actually wrote that this trend towards neglecting the holiness of God actually result, has resulted even in that time, in the mid-1900s, in a lack of reverence. So this failure to grasp the holiness of God or even to understand it to some degree can result in lukewarm faith, it can result in self, more self-centeredness, less acts for the Lord and for his kingdom. So I thought I would want to just teach on that if I could. I would say if, that it is something difficult, but it's something I wanted to change in my own life. And I knew that if I could grasp a better understanding of the holiness of God that it would have great effect on my life. 
It would affect my worship, my prayer life. And from a practical point of view, it would affect the way that I interpret and respond to the times in which we live. They are linked. The better we understand the holiness of God, the better we interpret what is going on around us and how we should respond to it. So let me open in prayer and hope the Lord leads us this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, you are indeed a holy God who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And I pray that you would give us wisdom this morning and insight as we delve into this topic. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us, guiding my words and giving us the ability to understand something which may be beyond our ability, really. But help us, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray and ask your help this morning. Amen. Okay. um, As I began going into this area, as I prepared... I had thoughts of my own inadequacy to address this topic. And I actually immediately thought, when I wanted to teach on this, that this could be, and maybe should be, the shortest message ever preached at Lion and Lamb. (laughs) And I wrote these two sentences down, and it was probably in the first or second day when I decided I wanted to teach on this. And here's what I wrote. It is not possible for any sinful human to adequately or accurately grasp God's holiness for it is far beyond our limited and sin-tainted intellectual capabilities. In our fallen state, we simply cannot understand or teach others about God's infinite moral perfection that defines his holiness. Stop and sit down, we all. (laughs) Now, that would not be very fulfilling if, if, if you were hoping to hear something that would help us grasp the holiness of God. But yet I hesitated to enter into this realm that I knew would fall short of what was true. There's no way I was going to do justice to the concept of teaching on God's holiness. I wondered whether I should just select a different subject and move on, but I didn't. But I want to say that a lot of you probably respect some things about Leonardo da Vinci. He's probably one of the greatest geniuses of all time, scientifically for his time, artistically, in many ways, but he thought in a similar manner. And here's what he said, I can't, regarding God's holiness, he said, I can't paint it, I can't describe it, anything I say about it would be inadequate. So he didn't. He painted all kinds of things, but he stayed away from the holiness of God because he didn't think he could do justice to it. Well, despite my deficient capacity to understand and describe God's infinite, incomparable, and majestic holiness. I'm going to try to take us on a journey there this morning and try to get us to have a a better understanding or glimpse of God's holiness. I'm going to try to do so. And I think he wants us to do so and not to just shy away from it as da Vinci did. And why do I think that? Well, because the Bible, his word, is just so filled with references to his holiness and things that he called holy. The word holy is in most translations about 550 times, and holiness another 25 to 50 depending on the translation. So God is telling us about his holiness and what is holy, what he says is holy. And there is value in trying to understand it better. 
Billy Graham gives us another reason to study it even if we do have trouble doing justice to the concept. He said, only when we seek to understand the holiness of God will we understand the depth of our own sin. I'd like to expand just a little bit about what Billy Graham said, although I didn't, this was one of those quotes that you, you, you just find. I don't know whether it was part of a much longer message that he had, but I'm gonna add one little bit to that. Unless we grasp even some aspects of God's holiness, we have difficulty understanding his amazing grace poured out towards us. When we see our own, like Billy Graham says, we see our own sin, when we understand his holiness, and then we wonder how could God pour his grace out upon us when we are infinitely less holy than he is. R.C. Sproul is another person who has taught extensively on holiness. When I was preparing, I, I listened to and read several things that R.C. Sproul taught on on this idea. And something he wrote, which adds more, the more we grasp the holiness of God, the more we see our own wickedness and vileness. That is similar to what uh, Billy Graham said, but in a slightly different way stated. By us understanding that nature that we have, that God would actually see as vile and wicked, it helps us to have a better, proper view of ourselves, and it helps to stifle our prideful tendencies, and it shows us our need for a savior and a rescuer. So we do believe in this church that God's word, his inspired word is sufficient in all things, and that would include providing us what we need to know about holiness. Even though it may not be able to express every aspect of this infinite quality of God, it does still give, give us what we need as we go forward, and we're gonna kind of delve into some of that. What God does give us, graciously gives us these glimpses of his holiness, it really shows us in a way, and I'll get more into this as I go forward this morning, that his holiness, the glimpses we receive in scripture, show us that his holiness infuses every other aspect of his divine nature and shines forth in his revealed glory. Holiness shines forth in revealed glory. And it's expressed in his power and wisdom, in creation and in his word, and his statutes, there's places we can see his holiness. Now there are numerous passages of scripture, and I'm only gonna read a couple here, that refer to God as holy. Isaiah 57, 15 says, God said, my name is holy. Revelation 15, 4, seven angels sang, you alone are holy. After crossing the Red Sea, Moses said, who is like you, majestic in holiness and supreme in glory? So what does holy mean? Most of you have probably been in a study somewhere where you have really defined holy. What does it mean? And you're familiar with terms like consecrated, set apart, separated from anything worldly, dedicated to things heavenly or sacred. I always like to look at the 1828 definition that Noah Webster had in his dictionary. 
And I looked it up there, and I looked up the part that defined God's holiness, and what it said there in that dictionary is perfectly pure, immaculate, and complete in moral character. These ideas that we have about holiness of God seem in some ways more relevant to things that are holy uh, or people that are declared holy rather than God himself. But in a sermon that John MacArthur gave, he said something that gave us the idea that these ideas of the definition of holy could apply to God himself. MacArthur said this, Holiness is to be regarded not as a distinct divine attribute, but as the result of all God's moral perfection together. When we think of God's holiness, we think of his utter separation from sin because everything in the creation is affected and influenced by sin. When we think of holiness, when we think of us becoming holy, we think usually of sanctification, becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We call this becoming holy, becoming sanctified, but the bottom line of it all is to compare what we can become through the sanctification process is a very deficient view when we compare it to God's holiness. And we'll come back and kind of uh, say a little bit more about that later. So all of God's moral perfection comes together in his holiness. It's infinitely greater than anything we can understand because we think of holiness through our finite lens of reality and through our inescapable sin nature. And that is the real impediment to our ability or capacity, really, to, to understand. We water holiness down sometimes to what we are pursuing with our weak flesh, even though we may have a willing spirit. God's holiness is just utterly distinct from anything we can fully comprehend or hope to achieve for ourselves. Now, while da Vinci refrained from painting his ideas about what holiness looks like, even though there are some visions in the Bible, others have attempted to paint it to show us what holiness looks like in their mind. In fact, there are numerous paintings that you will find. And I prepared a little short video, it's just a couple minutes, and I'd like to show this to you. It, it shows those paintings and it tries to match them with the words that we find in Isaiah 6, which was his vision of the throne room of God, and Revelation 4. So we're going to go ahead with this little short video to give you an idea of how some people tried to portray holiness. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, 
Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper, and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightning, thundering, and voices. Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne, and around the throne, were four living creatures with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, and the second living creature like a cow. The third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around them, and they did not rest day or night. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast the crowns before the throne. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Well, these artists tried their best to portray the holiness of God, and we may appreciate their efforts, but undoubtedly, they fall short of what is real and what is true. But it's still some people's best attempts to show what it is. <clears throat> There's a story of a young Kansas boy that I read <coughs> in preparing, and it's a real story. It was in the, somewhere in the mid to late 1800s. I think it was late. <coughs> Excuse me. And... Um, you know, travel was difficult at that time, but he and his family, they came from the east. The family of these people, this family that came and settled in Kansas was still in the east, and they decided they were going to take a train ride, and they went back to visit their family still remaining in the east, and while there, they went to see the Atlantic Ocean. And this little boy had never seen the ocean, and he was amazed and he wanted to share, he had friends back there in Kansas, he wanted to share what he saw with his friends when he returned home to Kansas. So what did he do? He filled some of the ocean water into a bottle and he brought it back to Kansas and he showed his friends the ocean. And um, they were not impressed. <laughs> that may be the way you felt when you looked at these artist renderings of heaven, just like the bottle of water did not portray the awesome 
view of the ocean that the boy saw, we cannot paint it or portray it. We can only wait until we get to see it when our time comes. And again, we'll come back to that at the very end this morning. But nevertheless, I believe God wants us to seek understanding. And a combination of looking at these kinds of things is helpful perhaps to some degree. Let's turn back to um, Isaiah's reaction to his vision of God in heaven. He exclaimed, woe is me, I have unclean lips. I think dirty thoughts and speak unclean words. I am undone. Isaiah's view of the holiness of God made him tremble and immediately see himself as a defiled sinner deserving severe punishment. That's what immediately came on him. Paul also had a glimpse of the holiness of God in two different encounters. He encountered Jesus, the risen Christ, on the road to Damascus. And we know that story. And later again, he was caught up to the third heaven where he saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. And his encounters caused him to see himself as a wretched man and the worst of sinners. Both Isaiah and Paul saw their condition in light of God's holiness, and they knew they needed a rescuer. Romans 7 and 8, in those two chapters, Paul rejoiced with thanksgiving that Jesus rescued him from the body of death that comes from sin and freed him from the law of sin and death. Isaiah acknowledging his sin, it became atoned for almost immediately. He was cleansed by God when one of the seraphim surrounding God's throne touched his lips with a live coal taken from the heavenly altar. He was then able to serve God as his prophet. This is perhaps similar to what happens when we are born again, baptized by the fire of the Holy Spirit, and equipped for the kinds of good works that bring praise and glory to God. It may be similar to what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah's initial reaction to seeing God upon his heavenly throne really brought terror and feelings of doom. Even though Isaiah really could not see God because scripture tells us no one can see God and live, and because God is invisible to human eyes, Isaiah was given a vision that revealed some of God's holiness, and that was enough to to really bring terror to him. He perhaps even thought he was going to be struck dead on the spot when he saw God. R.C. Sproul, another quote from him, says, Nothing threatens us more than the holiness of God. And a Bible teacher, Matthew Henry, said, No attribute of God is more dreadful to sinners than his holiness. As already stated, we, when we gain and consider even small glimpses of God's holiness and his glory, we see our sinful selves more clearly, and we usually don't like what we see. I don't think Isaiah liked what he saw in himself when he saw true holiness, or even partially a part of God's holiness. Instead, we like a sanitized version of God. And this is part of what drove me to want to teach on this topic, because I think that is fairly common 
to want this sanitized version. One who is grandfatherly, forgiving, loving, rather than awesome, powerful, almighty, and all that comes with that. The God, we, we don't, we want that grandfatherly God more than the God who causes the temple to tremble in his midst, who brought thunder and lightning upon Mount Sinai when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, who brought darkness and earthquake when Jesus died upon the cross, or who simply just spoke and trillions of stars sprang into existence. We can't hardly comprehend such a powerful, awesome God. Let's turn to the Song of the Seraphim from Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. The seraphim said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in Revelation, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Both of these passages use a technique that we don't find emphasized anywhere else that I could find in Scripture by repeating three times this characteristic of God. Holy, holy, holy. Nowhere in Scripture do we find other attributes of God stated that way. We don't find loving, 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 just, 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 powerful, powerful, powerful. But holy is elevated above everything. It is uniquely emphasized regarding God's essence and his nature. So with all that, I'll call it background, I think we find ourselves in a predicament. We see that even partial glimpses of the holiness of God can cause us to, in a way, be terrified, as Isaiah was, at least for a time, a quick time. But you know what? Here's the predicament. God's word also calls us to draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And we're commanded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength. Instead of drawing immediately near to the God we see as holy, we probably want to go flee and hide as Adam and Eve did when they sinned in the garden. It does not seem natural to a sinful person to want to draw near and love the one who terrorizes us because he may strike us dead. So how are we to draw near and love God if we're terrified of him and intimidated by his blazing holiness? Can we love and fear God at the same time as we're commanded to do? Now that may seem to be a contradiction to our Western way of thinking. Fear and love do not seem to to go hand in hand, but according to the biblical view, they do. And today is not my day to get into a major teaching on what it means to fear God. I simply want to say one thing, that it means deep reverence for Almighty God, and it means to stand in awe of his holiness, majesty, and power. It can go hand in hand with love. Now, our love for God and our fear of God are both based upon knowledge and trust, but we can have none of that without faith. 
We cannot love God or have proper fear without faith, which is a gift from him. We know scripture tells us that we love God because he first loved us and he showed us that love for us that he died for us while we were yet sinners. He sacrificed for us. So love can kind of come easily following that knowledge and understanding. But I still haven't addressed the question that I asked earlier. How do we get past the reluctance of a sinful person, the person who glimpses the holiness of God, and it reveals, as Billy Graham said, more of our own sin. It draws it clearer into focus. Thankfully, there is a way out of this predicament. And God has provided that way through the person of Jesus. I want to read a couple passages that affirm the truth that Jesus represents the perfect manifestation of God's holiness. John 1, verses 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus reveals God's glory, and as I mentioned a little earlier, God's glory is linked to his holiness. Matthew 1.22, Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Luke wrote that the angel who foretold this birth to Jesus, of Jesus to Mary, called the one to be born the Holy One. Colossians 2.9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All, including his holiness. Hebrew one, Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. John 14.9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It's clear. Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity, that same triune God that caused Isaiah to tremble and exclaim, woe is me, yet Jesus God the Son bids us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is no doubt from Scripture that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. He is not only approachable, but he welcomes us. He bids us to come unto him. He knows us. He sympathizes with our human weaknesses. He was tempted as we were. He suffered as we suffer, yet he was without sin. Jesus could go into a place of sin, and his holiness would not be corrupted. He ate with tax collectors. He allowed a sinful woman to wash his feet with her tears, he descended into hell before ascending to the right hand of God the Father. Jesus brought God's holiness wherever he went, and his holiness was never impacted or corrupted by who he was near or around. Jesus calls his followers friends. He knows our names. What a privilege that is 
to be called Jesus' friends. We don't fear coming into the presence of our friends, and we enjoy spending time with friends. Jesus says, come to me, for there you will find rest. When we draw near to Jesus, we see more of that hard-to-understand holiness of God. And this is the key point of my message today. If there's nothing else you take away from this message today other than the fact that you will be able to know more of God's holiness and how that can affect your life just through drawing closer to Jesus, I will have accomplished my purpose. And that's, and that's what I hope you go away with today. When we obey that command to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, then we can just grasp a little more of God's holiness and it becomes more real to us. Remember, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. We must get to know Jesus better and gain a better, to gain a better understanding of God's holiness. That is the path to do so. And how do we do that? Spending more time in God's word, in prayer, in worship, meditating on the word. If you want to get to know an earthly friend better, how do you do it? You spend time with that person, and that's the way we would get to know Jesus better and God's holiness better. So, when we focus on Jesus' life, what do we learn more about God's holiness? I'm going to just share a few things here. First and more important than anything is we see the purity of Jesus emphasized throughout Scripture. Peter identified Jesus um, as a lamb without blemish, blemish or defect and stated another way, John, Paul, Peter, and probably other writers, I think the writer of Hebrews, all said Jesus was without sin. Holiness is seen in Jesus is pure and sinless life. Second, Jesus' actions conformed perfectly to the will of the Father. In John 6, 38, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And he also said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And finally there he, he went forward with the Father's will. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, death upon the cross. Jesus also showed his holiness by his willingness to always confront evil, to not let it just slide by, forget it, to maintain peace. A few examples are worth sharing on this. Remember when he confronted the religious leaders and pronounced numerous woes upon them for their hypocritical and evil ways that were harming the people. Remember when he went and dealt with, I'll say, the spiritual realm. Remember when he confronted Peter, when Peter was listening to Satan and trying to prevent him from going to the cross, he said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. He was not afraid to confront him in this. Remember when he cleansed the temple of the corrupt money changers, and there's more things where he was not afraid to corrupt, I mean to uh, confront evil around himself. 
especially when he saw that something was harming people. As already stated, Jesus had an immunity to contamination by evil, and I've, I've already mentioned some of these things, but in the physical world, he was unafraid to interact with lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors, false teachers, whoever he needed to deal with, he did, and he was immune from impact by that. He brought holiness into everywhere he went. One more illustration of Jesus' holiness, it relates to the distinction between light and darkness. In John's gospel, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness and will have the light of life. And John wrote, he is pure light. In him there is no darkness. Light is always linked to holiness and goodness, whereas darkness is always linked to evil and purity. And Jesus said, I am light and I am the light of the world. So in Jesus, we see what the holiness of God looks like and what God means when he tells us to be holy. Can we ever exhibit the degree of holiness that we see in Jesus or saw in Jesus, even as recorded in scripture? I, I would say no, that's not possible, either in this life or even in the life to come when we join the Lord in heaven. Even though our sanctification process will be complete, when we receive our glorified bodies, God's perfect and infinite holiness is beyond our capacity. There is a higher level of holiness. While we'll be freed from sin when we join Christ in heaven, our holiness and glory will not approach God's holiness, which is what the seraphim sang and the elders proclaimed in these passages we looked at in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4. They distinguish God's holiness from the holiness of others around them that may be in heaven. They aren't singing about the holiness of, of all who are present. They are pointing to God and his holiness. I want to end by looking at uh, an encounter that Peter had with Jesus when he was first calling his disciples. This example that I'm going to, to use uh, can give us a better understanding of how we might respond to glimpses of God's holiness that we see in Scripture and also even in creation. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus went out with Peter on a fishing boat and told him where to put down his nets. You probably remember this story. Peter said that they'd been fishing all night without success, but even in that early stage, he called Jesus master and he complied. A huge number of fish came into the nets and he had to ask for help to get them into the boat. But here's his response to Jesus. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Note how similar Peter's words were when he encountered the holiness of God as Isaiah's, where he said, Woe is me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. Now look what happened next, though, to Peter. Jesus said to him, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. This right in the immediately following Jesus' recognition of Peter's fear and terror and, and desire for separation, the same as I mentioned earlier, 
that Adam and Eve wanted to free themselves from the presence of God. Remember in Isaiah's case, the seraphim took the coal from the altar and touched his lips and took his guilt away. Isaiah's terror appeared to immediately be replaced by a willingness to be sent to become the Lord's prophet. Peter was told, don't be afraid for this time, his time of following and learning from Jesus was about to begin and prepare him for what was coming next in his life. So as we grasp more about God's holiness, studying his word, drawing near to Jesus, keeping our eyes on him, we too are being prepared to follow him and serve him. The examples that we've looked at today are men who needed something to prompt them. There are men who probably knew God, but they needed to be prompted. And how did God prompt them? He prompted them by showing them a little bit of what his holiness looked like. Somehow that awakened them. And rather than simply ending in a state of trembling fear, God used the vision in Isaiah's encounter with God in the vision of the throne room in Jesus' encounters uh, with Peter and Paul. He changed them, and he immediately encouraged them and gave them assignments, and they were ready to do what came next. So, we too, if we have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, we have been equipped. We are ready to go. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But even though we are equipped to do good works, many of us seem stuck in the idle mode. We need a fire lit to stimulate action, just as Isaiah and Peter and Paul needed. Various things can light a fire to get us doing something. If we are a born-again Christian, there's an expectation that that handiwork that we have been created to do good works will become reality in our lives. So, how can we get that fire lit? How can we get out of idle mode? Well, I think one way, there's probably multiple ways to get a fire lit in a believer, but one way is to focus more on Jesus' holiness and see whether it prompts faithful action on our part. I think if we do that, it will make a difference in our lives and change us. One last point. In his first letter, John wrote when, uh, when Jesus, he said this, when Jesus appears, we shall be, uh, I'm sorry, I meant to put that up regarding service. But um, one last point. John said, when Jesus appears, when he comes back, we shall be like him, meaning we have all had our glorified bodies. That's what it means to be like him. We'll have glorified bodies either through the resurrection process or the transformation if we are still alive when he comes. But here's what he says next in that passage. We shall see him as he is. We shall see Jesus as he is. In our glorified state, we will be capable of seeing Jesus in all his holiness. And that is something to look forward to. Would you please rise and join me? We're going to read a prayer. 
that I put together, taken from Hebrews 12.2 and Matthew 11. Let's go ahead and, and read that. Almighty God, we seek your help to keep our hearts and minds focused upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us faithfully believe all of Jesus' wonderful promises for this life and all of eternity. Help us to take up his yoke and learn from him, for it is there that we will find rest for our souls